Good evening. It's Putin out of the loop. Human trafficking in Ukraine and a new homeless policy in New York. Is it just more of the same? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. Russian forces bombarded the outskirts of Kiev and a besieged city in northern Ukraine today. The barrages come after promises to reduce attacks ahead of more peace talks. Ukrainian officials called Russia out for having said on Tuesday it would curtail operations near the capital and the northern city of Cherniv to increase mutual trust for peace talks. Intensified bombardment could be heard in Kyiv on Wednesday morning from suburbs where Ukrainian forces have regained territory in recent days. The Pentagon says that Russia had started to reposition under a fifth, that's less than 20 percent, of its forces arrayed around Kyiv, but warned Moscow was expected to refit and resupply them for redeployment. A Pentagon spokesperson added another dimension. John Kirby says Russian President Vladimir Putin has been left out of the loop in his own war. We would concur with the conclusion that um, that uh, Mr. Putin has not been fully informed uh, by uh, his Ministry of Defense at every turn over the last month. Now, I want to caveat that we don't have access to every bit of information that he's been given or every conversation that he's had. And I'm going to be very careful here, not getting into too much more detail on this. But uh, we have seen these press reports uh, attributed to a U.S. official and, uh, and and we we would concur with the basic finding. Um, I um, but I'm not going to get uh, any more specific than, than that. Reuters reported earlier today the Russian President Vladimir Putin was misled by advisors who were too scared to tell him how poorly the war in Ukraine is going and how damaging Western sanctions have been. That's based on reports from White House and European officials, according to the story. Russia's February 24th invasion of its southern neighbor has been halted on many fronts by stiff resistance from Ukrainian forces who have recaptured territory even as civilians are trapped in besieged cities, even as Russia's Russia has largely achieved its stated goal of separating the eastern Donbass region from the rest of Ukraine. And with more than 4 million refugees fleeing a country of 44 million, almost all women and children, police in bordering countries and a growing flood of helping organizations have been sounding the alert that criminal gangs and individuals may be preying on vulnerable people. There's also been a marked uptick in Internet searches for people wanting to meet Ukrainian women. Traffickers have been targeting Ukraine long before the war began. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE, has been operating within and near Ukraine. The Special Representative for Combating Trafficking in Human Beings for OSCE is Valiant Ritchie. He tells WBAI the problem at the border is under close watch, but as refugees move into Europe, things get dicey. My concern was higher one or two steps away from the border. The next train station, major cities a few steps removed from the border. This is where I think the risks are higher because the official presence is not as strong in those cities. When people arrive at the Polish border, what happens now at that point there? I actually stood right on the border and I watched people coming across from Ukraine. Literally groups of twos and threes, fours, moms with two kids or maybe a grandfather with them carrying their bags in hand. So this is all their worldly possessions that they were able to leave. People coming across were unaccompanied children. There was transports of kids from orphanages. They would be taken to a dedicated center for children. Where do they go from there? 
they most likely transit further west. So Germany, France, Italy. And so I spoke with an official from Romania yesterday. He said about 85% of the people coming into Romania were moving off to other countries. So only 15% were staying. Some of those people are going to relatives or loved ones who they have a place to stay with. But many of them are not. And that's where my concern rises, because those are people who don't have a place to go. They maybe don't speak the language and they are more susceptible to being preyed upon by criminal actors. Men coming up and offering young women rides or giving them a place to stay, offering them money. And this makes me very concerned. A concern of what might possibly happen or concerned about what's already been happening? Well, that's the big question. The number of confirmed cases still is very low. What we are getting are reports of men offering unsolicited help to women. And I emphasize that because, for example, these men are not approaching the men, offering them help. They're approaching women and offering them things. So that raises some alarms there. They're also doing it in train stations like in Berlin or in Vienna. And the police are responding to that, but I wonder how many of those cases are happening outside the site of the police. And what I'm worried about is they'll offer them some place to stay, and then all of a sudden those people end up in a situation they can't get out of. We've had a few reports of people taking the passports of people fleeing Ukraine, holding on to those passports, and then demanding money to be able to stay with them. That's just step one of a concern about exploitation. What is human trafficking? What is actually the concern of what might happen? What goes on? The most likely one is sexual exploitation. And what we're talking about is taking women or girls and putting them into prostitution. This is the most likely scenario. Women and girls amount to uh, over 90% of the identified victims of sexual exploitation. Ukrainians traditionally are in the top 10 of the most exploited people in Europe for trafficking. Most of the people coming out of Ukraine are, in fact, women and children. So if you put all those factors together, my biggest concern is around taking women and girls, putting them into prostitution, and exploiting them for that. Secondarily could be putting children into forced begging. We see that quite a bit in Europe as well. It's one of the areas that is most growing in terms of forms of exploitation. And then maybe third is labor exploitation, putting them into, for example, domestic servitude, where they're working in somebody's house as a caregiver and they're being exploited that way, or even in child labor. I mean, these are all risks. Individual people descending on on these people like wolves, or was it more like a mafia organized thing? The answer is all of the above. So I think we're going to see, expect to see organized criminal groups see a real opportunity to exploit women into brothels in various cities around Europe. They're very efficient. They've exploited Ukrainians for years in this way. They know how to do it, and they are going to be definitely looking at this as an opportunity. But individual operators, same thing. I think they're going to see a group of vulnerable people who are desperate, and they're going to see an opportunity to make money off of that. African people being denied crossing at the border, students being treated in a much more differential way. Is that persisting? It doesn't appear so, but again, I think you're always going to have the possibility of cases where that's happening. Initially, there was a little bit of uncertainty about how to handle people who maybe weren't Ukrainian citizens but had been in Ukraine, so that's a complicated situation, and the EU has adopted some legislation to sort some of that out. We'll see less of those issues in the future. Are there any good and bad guys here? 
I don't take a position on the, the conflict per se, but certainly the actions that have happened in Ukraine are creating a lot of vulnerability. Some four million people have fled the country and millions more are being displaced. And that makes me really concerned about what's going to happen to them next. So we're trying to support countries in preventing that from happening and keeping people safe. What happens next? Many cities are being leveled. So there's not a place for them to go back to right away. And I think there's going to be a period where people are in transit. They're in limbo. Those are dangerous times, too, because they may not have work. They may not have the support they need. And we've got to make sure that people don't take advantage of that and exploit them while there's a period of transition there. We're not out of the woods, even if the conflict were to stop tomorrow. That is Valiant Ritchie. He's the Special Representative for Combating Trafficking in Human Beings for the OSCE, which is an organization doing important work in the border area between Ukraine and its bordering countries, uh, Poland, Hungary, and Romania, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Meanwhile, on this side of the Atlantic, the relative quiet at the border with Mexico may be coming to an end as the White House decides whether to end a policy called Title 42, a coronavirus public health order allowing the expulsion by the U.S. government of persons who have recently been in a country where a communicable disease was present, in most cases covid On Thursday, last Thursday, the Biden administration announced plans to speed up asylum processing and deportations at the U.S.-Mexico border as officials worry over a potential mass influx of migrants if Title 42 is rescinded. The White House further explained Washington's plans today. This is a decision that we have long deferred to CDC. Title 42 is a public health directive. It is not an immigration or migration enforcement measure. So the decision on when to lift Title 42, we defer to the CDC. Um, that being said, of course, we are planning for uh, multiple contingencies. And we have every expectation that when the CDC ultimately decides it's appropriate to lift Title 42, there will be an influx of people to the border. And so we are doing a lot of work to plan for that contingency. I think you saw yesterday the Department of Homeland Security did a briefing walking through some of the planning that they're doing to increase efficiency, to ensure that we have the capacity, to ensure that we are operating in a way that's uh, that is treating migrants humanely, fairly, to continue to build up our migration system and ensure that we are restoring order at the border. And that was spokesperson for the White House earlier today. Under the new rules, border officials first ask migrants if they're afraid to return to their home countries. Those who say yes are scheduled for a credible fear interview with an asylum officer that could lead to a temporary stay in the United States. Currently, immigration courts are backlogged with 1.7 million cases and asylum claims can take up to five years to be adjudicated. About 672,000 of the cases waiting to be heard are asylum cases. At the same time, the White House announced today that uh, Last Thursday at the U.S. will take in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. And in national news, it looks like uh, President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, Kintanji Brown-Jackson, will slide into her job with at least some GOP support. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, a centrist, says she plans to vote to confirm Jackson, who would become the first black woman on the highest court. We had an in-depth discussion of many of the cases that were brought up at the hearings, and she explained in more detail her careful 
thoughtful reasoning. I didn't always agree with the results that she came up with, but I had no doubt that she applies a very careful approach to the facts of the case uh, when she is judging. I've not attempted to pressure anybody to come out in the same reach the same decision that I have reached, and uh, you'll just have to ask them where they are. And that was Senator Susan Collins. In a related story, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell blasted calls for another justice, Clarence Thomas, to resign. The justice and the entire court should feel free to completely ignore all this. Justice Clarence Thomas is a great American, an outstanding justice, he is faithful to the text of our laws and constitution. His writing is clear. His reasoning is rigorous and transparent. I have total confidence in Justice Thomas' impartiality in every aspect of the work of the court. Each of the nine justices should feel free to make every single judicial decision they make with total independence and complete freedom. Last week, reports revealed texts between Jenny Thomas, a conservative activist and former aide to President Donald Trump, and then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the aftermath of Election Day. And of course, she's the wife of the Supreme Court Justice. Help this great president stand firm, Mark, she wrote in a November 10th, 2020 message. Going on to say, you are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. In another message dated November 5th, 2020, Thomas wrote, do not concede. Justice Thomas, her husband, has come under fire in light of the messages since he was the lone dissenting justice when the Supreme Court refused to block the release of a trove of documents that Trump fought to keep from the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol riot. McConnell's comments come just one day after Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined several of her colleagues in urging Thomas to step down. Cortez tweeted, Clarence Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, Clarence Thomas should resign. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Yesterday, activists and impacted New Yorkers uh, stormed the state capitol to tell Governor Kathy Hochul and the state legislature to end the 421A tax giveaway, rebranded, they say, as the 485W to wealthy New York City developers and stop the rollbacks on bail reform. They also called for housing for the homeless through the Housing Access Voucher Program and for the end of evictions ravaging working class communities of color and poor New Yorkers. Among the controversies in Albany is a 10-point bail reform plan that would scale back an earlier bail reform, uh, fundamentally eliminating bail for almost all nonviolent crimes. And it's been blamed for the rise in crime by some, even as others say that's a ridiculous statement. It has no connection at all to the rise in shootings and other crimes that have occurred in conjunction with the COVID pandemic. But that didn't stop Republican Bob Ort. He's a state senator from demanding that bail be reinstated by legislation. They put forward no solutions. We're just trying to scare people as if murder rates are just a statistic used to scare people. On the opposite side, progressive uh, candidate for governor, Jamani Williams, said uh, we shouldn't repeat failed programs, programs that failed in the past. 
raise the age, like uh, dangerousness. Dangerousness, by the way, is used in every other state in the union that has cities where violence is worse than it is in New York City. So let's not copy what's not working. That's right. Let's continue what we know is working. Let's fund it. Let's have the courage to have a real public safety plan discussion so New Yorkers, like my mother and my sister and my wife and my daughters and the people behind me, can actually be safe, can actually feel safe. That takes courage. It's not a two-second soundbite. And you have to take some risks. Governor Hope, these people's lives are more important than your election. And that was Jumani Williams. And in another interesting speech, uh, the New York City campaigns manager for Citizen Action New York, Stanley Fritz, spoke about the deteriorating relationship between the governor and the lieutenant governor. What Governor Hope has done since then is throw Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin under the bus. She was afraid to speak to the press. So the black man you talked to be Lieutenant Governor because you had no cachet in black communities gets to get chased by the press because you put out a template plan that you could not defend. And now listen, I'm not saying Lieutenant Benjamin is right. But you know what? I didn't see Kathy Hopel out there and someone needs to talk about that. And Brian Benjamin is reportedly under a federal probe for a variety of things we're still looking into and uh, has uh, probably lost the support of the governor with an election coming up. And uh, here closer to home here in the city, Mayor Adams today presented a new program he says will uh, solve or has the potential to solve what's become obvious to most New Yorkers who ride the subways and go about the city, the tremendous homeless crisis that's here in New York that's affecting thousands of our fellow citizens who are living in the streets and subways. The mayor has uh, begun a new, with the conjunction with the police department and other agencies in the city, has begun a program to remove homeless encampments, of which there are hundreds throughout the city, and to prevent homeless people from sleeping nightly in the subway system, instead taking them to shelters and having other interventions for mental illness and other things. And he also said that several hundred units of special emergency housing would be provided. However, it's way below the amount needed. These are uh, apartments that would be provided to one, we're not sure, one or two or more people each, uh, homeless people. And there's a problem that's been developing over time that Homeless people just don't want to go to the shelters. They reject and boycott the shelters because of the poor conditions they're subjected to there into congregate shelters where you have to sleep in bunk beds and the like and would rather live in apartments with one, two, even three in the apartment, a much healthier uh, way of going about housing the homeless. However, there just hasn't been a lot of determination by the city to do that. The mayor presented what he says is at least a beginning towards that end. We are going to do the right thing for New Yorkers, the right thing for New York City and the right thing for public health and the right thing for our New Yorkers who are falling, who have fallen on hard times. There's no freedom or dignity in living in conditions that we are witnessing here. And as I stated, no solution is perfect. Perfection is what we're going to move towards. We have to rebuild fear and distrust. When I'm on the subway system talking to those who are homeless, there's a lack of trust. When we go from homeless shelter to homeless shelter, uh, like my commissioner is doing of HRA and visiting unannounced to see how good our product is, we keep coming up with the same message. 
we don't trust. And we're going to rebuild that trust as we put in a place a real-time system to analyze um, where the shelters, the locations for assistance. Also, as these encampments attempt to reopen, we're going to immediately go there and respond. Where did I learn that from? I learned it during the mid-90s when our transit system was filled with graffiti. Instead of ignoring the graffiti on the wall, there was an immediate announcement to those who were cleaning the system to cover the paint of the graffiti or remove it. And you saw a graffiti-free transit system because we were consistent and we had a zero tolerance for it. And that's the mayor. But Jacqueline Simone, who's policy director for the Coalition for the Homeless, says much of the mayor's plan is just rehashing the same thing that's been tried and failed uh, by previous administrations. The problem is this mayor is pretending that this is a new strategy when he's really just doubling down on the same failed criminalization strategy of the prior administration. The Blasio administration did thousands of sweeps and encampment clearing efforts. They had initiatives for the subway trains as well. And yet we still have thousands of people who are sleeping on the streets and on the trains. And it's because just pushing people from one place to another, breaking down their encampments, does not actually address the root causes of why people are sleeping on the streets in the first place. If we want to actually reduce unsheltered homelessness, which is what everyone's goal is here, we should be offering people a safer alternative to the streets. And that means private single rooms in low barrier shelters and permanent housing. So right now, many people are being offered transport to a large congregate shelter that in many cases they've made a conscious decision to avoid. Many people report they don't feel safe in those types of facilities, especially during a pandemic where there's an airborne virus that could make people very sick. If the city is just using policing and offering people the same options that they don't want, they're not going to be effective. What would actually help people move indoors is offering them safe, private indoor places, a room of their own where they don't have to worry about strangers or about the pandemic, and support services tailored to meet their needs. The city is only opening up a few hundred of those types of beds, and the mayor could not answer today how many of the new beds are actually single rooms versus more dorm-style settings. And in the meantime, they've gone ahead with these very aggressive street sweep strategy, which again has been tried and failed with prior administrations. They want to actually do something different and address the real crisis of people sleeping on the streets. They should be offering people a better place to go. And that's where the administration's energy should be, not just on publicity stunts and policing. More about playing to the conservative reporters at the New York Post who were giving the last mayor a hard time. During the press conference today, the mayor was saying the prior administration was dysfunctional and they, they ignored and allowed this problem to persist. And then when a reporter asked, well, what did the prior administration do? He wasn't sure. And it, the answer is they were doing the same thing that he's doing now, just not, not do, doing it under a two-week period. But they were doing repeated encampment clearings and thousands of sweeps often of the same locations over and over and over because they were failing to actually offer people safer indoor places. People are going to continue to remain on the streets unless the city gives them a better place to go. We need to embrace housing as a fundamental human right. And that is something that the United States has failed to embrace. And as a result, we're seeing 
the symptom of homelessness. Homelessness is a symptom of a variety of broken systems, and it is a consequence of failing to ensure that people have the income that they need and the basic stability of permanent housing. Rather than vilifying people who have fallen through our broken social safety net, we should be trying to repair that social safety net and ensuring that we prevent homelessness before it begins, that we have safe shelters if, God forbid, people do become homeless, and helping people move into permanent housing much more quickly. Right now, the average length of stay in shelters is well over a year on average. Many people are sleeping on the streets for even longer periods than that. So we need to break down the bureaucracy and actually embrace housing as a solution to homelessness and ensure that those resources are at a scale to meet the need. That's something that has not been actually tried before. Um, we've had only half measures from prior administrations. This is a turning point where the pandemic really highlighted how essential permanent housing is. We were all told to stay home. Thousands, tens of thousands of our neighbors didn't have a home to go to. Now, instead of just pushing those people from one street corner to the next, let's actually end homelessness by investing in permanent housing and offering those people an apartment of their own. It takes so much paperwork and so much time for people to be found eligible for supportive housing. So someone who's on the streets needs to have documentation that they are unsheltered. And for people who aren't engaged with outreach workers or other social services, the most vulnerable people, it can be really hard for them to get all the documentation to prove that they're homeless and to get connected to medical providers to have a psychosocial evaluation to prove that they have a mental illness. These are hurdles that we make people jump through. In the interim, people are sleeping on the streets or languishing in shelters. And meanwhile, we have this housing supply that is desperately needed but is being underutilized because the administrative requirements for accessing those apartments are so onerous. And that's why we really think the administration should be tackling those issues rather than just criminalizing poverty and pushing people from one place to the other. Jacqueline Simone is policy director for the Coalition for the Homeless. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Richie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.